A good conversation can shift the direction of change forever. Would you leave it to chance? Join the authors of Design to Change and explore this series of conversations with designers and event owners. Driven by the need and conversations with event owners and event designers who use the event canvas around the world, this series explores the depths of conversations to elevate your abilities to look and act beyond the now. Episodes are hosted by Rude Janssen, Rul Friesen, Dennis Lehrer and Paul Rukens, with illustrious changemakers, designers and pioneers in the field of design and beyond. To explore these conversations and additional content, visit designtochange.online. For now, let's start the conversation. Conversations. All right, welcome Sunil Malhotra from uh, New Delhi in India, joining us today. Welcome. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. I just, I just hope I can do justice to your uh, podcast. Uh, you will absolutely do that. Um, Sunil, I've been uh, fascinating since we met uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we met online, we've never met face to face, but uh, we were introduced through a common friend, Dave Gray, and doing some work on how executives use facilitative uh, techniques and, and visual collaboration techniques to, to get things done. And that's kind of how our conversations got started. Now you are, uh, as you described, self-described on LinkedIn, uh, the nowhere guy designing from the emergent present, and you're the founder of ideafarms.com where you harness the exponentials and the white light synthesis. Now, tell us a little bit about, more about that. That's all in the past. I don't know how relevant it is, but uh, <laughs> yes. And that's, that's the business card one likes to put on the internet. Uh, the interesting thing is, and this is not something I invented, nowhere is a very interesting word. If you break it up, it's nowhere, as in no place, but it's also now here. So yeah. a lot of people have asked me these two questions. Why do you call yourself the nowhere guy? And I'm actually a now here guy, which is why I say I'm designing from the emerging present, not from the past and not looking into the future because the present is all we have. That sounds a little philosophical, but that's, that's what I've been training myself to do in the last two years, ever since COVID hit. And it's given me many, many, many unique insights. Some good, some bad, but almost all of them very useful. The second question uh, people typically ask is, what is this white light synthesizer? Mm -hmm. I've had this belief that a designer's role is less of a musician and more of a conductor or an orchestrator. And somehow, you know, we get uh, attached to the fact that we have certain skills, which we just can't get uh, rid of, whether they are physical and actionable skills or something in our minds. And so we find it very difficult to let go of these and end up actually demoting the role of design to something that's like a profession or a tactical execution system, which we are very good at, rather than the philosophical and the metaphysical role that design can actually play. I love that. So be less of a musician, but more of an orchestrator. You've hit my musician's nerve here, which uh, um, as an orchestrator in, in, in um, um, and an endless fascination for how, you know, with um, a very limited set of notes, we can make such a tremendous amount of music right across the planet. Even without the notes, we could make music, right? Because it didn't start by writing out the notes. The, 
you know, the, the note scripture is just a, an obsessive way to capture um, legacy, I suppose, or posterity for those that were the orchestrators that want to capture whatever was orchestrated in the past, right? So um, fascinating stuff. Now, <clears throat> we always start off our conversation, Sunil, with uh, the question, a good conversation can shift the direction of change forever. Would you leave it to chance? My sense is that it's always been left to chance. And it's high time that we actually brought it under our control and made a much more conscious effort not to leave it to chance. That might sound uh, a little contrarian, but I mean, if you look at it closely enough, actually, I don't think any of the conversations we typically have are not chance meetings, you know? And most of the time when you try to have something that's not left to chance, it's, it's so way below human capability that it, I mean, a machine could do it. That's the way I would put it. And with your knowledge of how technology applies and goes into the mix of all of this, I think uh, we, can, we, we can explore that more in, in the next series of questions. But I like the, the when, when you stated no dash where versus now slash here, that liminal moment of being in that moment where change can happen needs to be super conscious in order for change to ultimately happen. Yes. Yeah. So let me ask and you I this think question. It may, be, it may also be very desirable to leave it to chance. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've always, uh, I've started now, you know, becoming more and more convinced about is that a lot of the problems that we, we face today are actually symptoms of problems that we've never solved because we've never seen the problem itself, right? You've just been going after symptoms and solving them. And as a result, what's ended up happening is that we've kind of uh, reached a point without being uh, super conscious about it, of a level of hubris where, where everything that we look around uh, us has to do only with human beings. So we've taken such an anthropocentric view of everything in the world. And, and that, in my opinion, that's what the problem is. So if you've done, if you've taken that kind of a view, then everything that you see outside of yourself will definitely be a problem. So let's bring it back into nature. When I look out the window here in Switzerland, um, I'm confronted with hills, right? And hills imply that you see a horizon. Um, and the closer or the higher the hills, the closer the horizon is to you. Um, let me ask you, what's currently on your horizon of change? Uh, when you're looking into your future? That's another contrarian view for me, you know, so I, and I have to be actually a little bit more consistent with what I just said before you asked me this question. Is that, do I look at everything from my individual perspective and then try to see how the rest of the world fits into my individual perspective? Or can I, can I take a completely reverse view on figuring out what's really happening and how can I, you know, navigate that part of it. So what I've been realizing is that a lot of what uh, is making sense to me these days is by taking an outside in view and completely discarding the inside out view that I've always had in my life, right? In fact, uh, that's, that's not being fair on myself because I've not, not always had an inside out view. I've always had a a balanced view outside in and I think one of the things that we uh, you and I spoke about also regarding design thinking is about you know trying to keep uh, 
an integral view to design and an integrated view to uh, who you are, how do you manage it about yourself as, and your being that? How do you operate well in a design group or in a, a, a team? And then what is it that that you contribute to society and what does contribute what society contribute back to you, right? So when you take an integrated view like that, it starts making a lot of sense. Then this you, me versus them, I versus the rest of us, I versus we, all those things kind of, you know, suddenly collapse into this one uh, integrated view, right? So right now what's happening on my event horizon or in my horizon is basically to say that uh, this post, so-called post-COVID, and I'll use post-COVID in a very uh, generalist sort of way, I, without the intention or the interest in using that, but I think everybody needs a very different way of looking at the world because we are at a, uh, a stage. I think you, you also had a chance to uh, see the video that I did with Irvin Laszlo. Yes. And he, sp he spoke about the fact that we are at an existential bifurcation point right now. Yeah. And, and we can choose by individually looking at that bifurcation as something that can take us along a breakthrough path or continue down the breakdown path that we have been uh, looking at and we can perceive around us uh, as of today. And I'm really one of those people who's highly optimistic. It's just that, you know, uh, kind of we've, we've blindsided ourselves to the opportunity and the positive, uh, capable, positive outcomes that are possible. And I think that's, again, just looping back to close the question, is that, you know, we just got to be able to make sure that we are part of the entire solution and not that something that I do is going to make the difference elsewhere. That's a very, very arrogant way of looking at life, you know, that I, I have the power to make a change to, to the world around me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the philosophical constructs that I've grown up uh, starting to believe and starting to profess is that when you do something which is, I, uh, uh, which takes into account a much more holistic or a systemic view to the whole thing, you are automatically making yourself a part of it. Whereas the converse is not true, or not necessarily true. I don't know if that's making sense, but that's the way it's going on in my head. It does, and <clears throat> I, I, I think from a perspective's look at things, like the way you were saying, you know, from the outside-in view or the inside-out view, um, there's a relentless battle in everybody's head, even of our auditor right now. Uh, I'm sure you know the people listening to this podcast. It's now the 25th of March, 2022, as we record this. Uh, Sunil, you and I have no idea how long this podcast might survive, you know, on the internet or in whatever medium comes after that. <clears throat> so placing things in the context of time is such an important thing, right? But also placing it in the context of the view, right? Is it your view, my view, our view? In that context, I'd like to you know, because a lot of the people listening to this podcast and, and maybe others outside that, when they think about design to change and elevating your ability to look and act beyond the now, um, the only place where you can make the change is in the here and the now, right? And, Correct. you know, now we are, it's the two of us having this conversation uh, on this Friday afternoon um, where in different time zones, uh, we're in a, in a similar reality, but if we pretend to be able to systematically be able to design events where more people get together and could change the direction of change together, that also implies that there is a 
there's an intrinsic power in being able to design those kinds of gatherings um, to be able to make a change or make a difference or create a new bifurcation, right? You were saying there's an existential bifurcation, maybe it's because of COVID, maybe it's because of other things, maybe it's a past behavior and how we've dealt with our context, our ecology over the last, you know, hundreds of years. But somehow we're at this pivotal moment. Do you think you can design pivotal moments yourself and inflict change in the desired direction of change if you design for that to happen? It's interesting that you use the word inflict because it is virtually like trying to inflict something upon uh, upon a, a point in time, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, So I, I, I will try and, uh, you know, I was asked a question recently. I was, uh, we, we were talking about, uh, this, is, this is a conversation that's happening everywhere. It's about uh, what's going to happen when artificial real, uh, intelligence actually takes over and is it going to reach a singularity point? Like all technologies are moving in that direction. And so will, like Yuval Noah Harari says that he, predicts that there's going to be the emergence of a uh, useless class. At the Industrial Revolution, he said that it was the advent of the worker class. And now with artificial intelligence, you're going to come up with a useless class. So what are human beings going to be doing, right? And uh, so there was this this conversation we were having about, you know, what do you think about what's happening with artificial intelligence? And I came back to my favorite topic saying that we are taking a very anthropocentric view of artificial intelligence as well, because we believe that as conscious, the uh, up the highest level of the food chain is human beings, our species, and we are the only so-called conscious species, and we have the power to articulate, we have the power to uh, move, all of those things, right? And even though in terms of our size and shapes and things like that, we are so minuscule, but because of the power of how we can harness capabilities around us, including of our own species, we've been able to create this magical world, which is uh, which we see around us today. Uh, and that, I think, has given us the arrogance to believe that we are doing something which is actually quite happening, in my opinion, and this is a very, very crazy way of looking at stuff, is that nature is using human beings to create the next level of evolution, basically. And it's through human beings that nature can actually create uh, artificial intelligence too, right? There is no other way to create artificial intelligence. And so if we believe that, you know, we can actually inflict anything in, in the moment or in, uh, that, that we are living today, it's just a, giving us the com- comfort to, into believing that we have this free will and that we are able to do something like that, right? And if I were to, I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying that if we take a leap of faith and believe that that could be true, then the best part that comes out of it is that you can actually not try to define the change or define that moment or design anything going into the future. But what you can do is you can be present and take in all the inputs about what that moment offers in terms of potential and play in it with the best of your design capabilities. Right? That's another way to look at it. So this guy said, I mean, like, I, I don't, are you telling me that, you know, humans are not programming artificial intelligence? I said, in my opinion, it's already gone way, way out of our hands. You know, artificial intelligence is programming itself. It's autonomous, right? 
and the way uh, artificial intelligence is really going to learn is not because we teach it anything it's going to imitate what we do so if we do the wrong things and if we behave badly that's what artificial intelligence beings are going to be imitating and if we behave well and we are ethical then that's that's what those guys will pick up right i mean even if these are machines that are completely independent of human beings there's no reason for us to feel threatened by them so then it all loops back into you know how do you behave it's almost like the conversation we had before the podcast how how do your children pick up i mean there's one biological genetic way that kids kids get something from you but the rest of it we we keep thinking that they learn things outside in the big bad world and that the school teach them stuff but actually the stuff that they really learn is is back home they observe what their father is doing their mother is doing if the mother and father are constantly fighting then then the child believes that that's the way it needs to be and therefore then it grows up with a very you know aggressive attitude i guess i don't know this is all conjecture and theorizing but i like you know the fact that um um ai will imitate us ultimately and just in the same way that behavior gets emulated can also imply that you know nature also demonstrate behavior right in its yes. own way as yes. a reaction or maybe as a as a creation force right we see that around us there there are, every action has that you know reaction to it um which ultimately you know you there must be a reason why your organization is called idea farms right because it implies that you know something as lucid as an idea can actually be farmed or that farmed, there yes. are farms uh, in which ideas can thrive almost like in a garden right um in an earlier conversation with Dave Gray we spoke about you know culture as being a garden that needs to be irrigated and pruned at the right time and and cultured and you know cared for um in a in a in a very specific way Um, I'm actually very pleasantly surprised that you picked up on the farming part of idea farms because I typically have to explain this to people. Mm-hmm. Mostly what people think is they get attached to the first word which is ideas and they think that we are more a creative agency because we come up with ideas. And uh, Oh there was a small break there. Yeah so uh, um, so i typically have to then you know uh, demythify it and tell them that it's not about the ideas because there's this uh, epiphany that i had and the experience that i've had has shown me that actually the best ideas come from the client companies you can never give anybody a good idea sitting on the outside but what you can definitely offer to them is the farming capability of those ideas which is inter and uh, multidisciplinary which companies don't have so basically idea farms the whole philosophy has always been this that you know you come up with the idea you share that idea with us and we will give you innovation in your non core areas you have the capability to innovate in your core areas but you probably do not have so one of us can never be good as uh, as good as all of us you know that tenet that comes into play and uh, so i i must commend you that you you were the first person in my entire life that has picked up the farming part of idea farms and I, thank you for it because it, then it, it just makes me feel i mean uh, vindicated that it was a good name to have picked up 
I'm also, now that you explain nowhere and now here, I'm re-studying every word I see in your dictionary. <laughs> Because the depth of those very small changes is, is basically a design mindset, right? It's how you look at things and it's the perspective in which you interpret things. Which reminds me, after our conversation, I'll show you, I'll share a very rough sketch that I've made at some point about the farming of enabling ideas to rain onto a terrain and that to be able to farm in an ecological system. Because I think, where can change be made? Because if, if, we're at, if we are at an existential bifurcation where it's either the path of breakdown or the path in which we find a way to allow the ecosystem and nature in which we thrive to take its course and we adjust and we, are, we become part of the ecosystem instead of just exhaust the ecosystem or use it as our legitimate context and think that we can determine how it should be dealt with. I want to bring you back to that you know, horizon of change because if your horizon of change of where change can happen is in the here and now, you must have gone to many events in your life, right? Can you remember like a fantastic event, a mediocre event and a terrible event? And what makes the distinction between the three? And how does it influence your behavior in that moment to either alter something because then your design mind must go into spinning mode as to you're an accomplice of something that is a waste of time, right? Or is a time well saved in the words of Joe Pine, you know, in the experience economy or, you know, time well spent or time well invested. You are, you are at the lever of your own time and how you spend the time, which is our most precious commodity, right? So how in relation to that do events play into that in your, in your view? How should event designers deal with the fact that they have this responsibility when so many people get together? It could be a terrible waste of time or it could be a fantastic investment of time. So I, I can answer this in two ways and I will do it one after another. Mm -hmm. One is that I, I must answer the question about the recollecting a good event, a terrible event and a neutral sort of an event. And I think, you know, I've not grown up. I mean, I realized very, very early that uh, I can't, although I believe that the present moment is all there is, but one needs to look at it as, as phases and not as events, because events are very difficult to put, put together as a phase, right? So, so the phase... Uh, I had one phase in my life, and it's not, it's not chronological, I had one phase in my life where I had a lot of disillusionment. I felt that, I felt that, you know, I can change the world and I'm an idealist and nobody's allowing me to do that and my design skills are not being put to good use and all of that. And uh, that was, it was a phase and I can call it an extended event actually, right, uh, as a phase. So as an extended event, uh, what it taught me at the end of that phase Because basically, the phase only ends when you choose to get out of it. Otherwise, it, it's just a continuing event, right? You can keep blaming the rest of the world for what is happening. So I've been very blessed and fortunate that at the right amount of time, I got the learning that I got out of it. And I realized that I cannot be blaming things outside myself because I have been contributing to whatever frustration I feel. So basically, what am I doing? I'm allowing external events and people and... Uh, Uh, opportunities to get under my skin. That means I'm handing over control of my life to other people, to the external parts, right? Mm -hmm. That's when I settled into a different mo mode altogether to say that, okay, 
if I don't hand it over to other people, that means I'm taking it over, which is a very logical and obvious way of looking at it. So when you're younger, that's what you actually start thinking. And then you realize that that's exactly the same, same thing you wanted to avoid in the first place. You don't want to take it all on yourself, right? And then came the third phase, which was a very, um, it was a very enlightening phase for me. I don't claim that, you know, I don't get angry or I don't get frustrated or irritated. These are emotions that one as a human being always feels. But what really got me to a point where I started understanding, and that's why I am where I am today, uh, in, in the frame of mind that I am today, is to say that, you know, look at it, look at every event, good, bad or ugly, as an experience. And it's a one-time experience. So if you don't experience it to the fullest, then you're going to regret not having experienced it. Even if it was a nasty event that you're going through, how about trying to experience it so that when you come out of it, then you actually remember that you had that sort of an experience and you're probably the only person who chose to experience it and add it to the fullest. So that then gives you that, the actual, you know, I don't call it understanding because the understanding is always in the mind. It's not, in, not a part of your being. But then that gives you some sort of a knowledge to say, hey, what, uh, let me try. I mean, for, for as far as possible, let me try to be in the present moment mm -hmm. because that's the only place where I can experience exactly what I need to experience. Otherwise, I'm either living in the future or, or the fear of the future or something in the past that I try to cling on to. So I like this idea that you said, you know, you, you, are, you actually set the markers of your entry and exit behavior. You determine where those perimeters are and you can see, you can look at these experiences as extended phases with an entry and an exit point. It, it, so, it does still imply, I feel that <clears throat> if every event is an experience and you remember the experience and you own the experience so that you get the most out of that moment, so you learn from it, so, you, so, you, so it does something to you consciously. If you orchestrate the gathering of a number of people together, there is a form of ownership of other people's times or the time that you claim from people for them to get together with you, right? Right. Whether it be a family event or whether it be a, a conference where like-minded people get together or whether it may be a workshop that you host at the Idea Farms or, or that we host at the Event Design Collective, we claim people's time and, you know, call it egocentric or you know magnetic at some point you know people want to be there for a specific reason the time even gets converted into monetized in some form yes, in order yes. to create value or to demonstrate what the value is of that time that's almost like a base currency that we have across the planet regardless of inflation or deflation right so do you think as a designer, as an event designer, we all at some point are, a, maybe we're not conscious of it, but at any point in time, we are always an event designer, right? Together, we are now designing the time that people spend listening to our conversation with a loose frame, but we're orchestrating the direction where it's headed. We don't know exactly where it's headed, but that serendipity and leaving that to chance is actually a super powerful thing. But if you have assembled 1500 people or like in the case with the conversations we've had on Wednesdays over the last weeks with Dave Gray and maybe you know seven eight different people to talk about a specific subject we decide to claim that time and spend time talking to each other about that specific subject that implies a design responsibility to the person that decides to call the meeting or call the event or gather those people so um you're absolutely right. 
the thing is that I have always wanted to challenge the uh, conditioning and the assumptions that people have. And I think that's a great way to break the ice in a design thinking workshop, for example, right? Mm. So what ends up happening, well, I'll give you an example. So uh, you have a design thinking workshop, you've got all these uh, senior management, the CEOs, the CXOs, all of them, maybe 20, 22 senior people in the room, the senior most people in the room. Uh, obviously, you need to be humble enough to understand that they are smart enough because they've hired you. In any case, they're paying you for it and they're a successful company. So you can't talk down to them, nor can you enter that, uh, that space or that event thinking that you know more than they do, right? But then because of uh, your conditioning and your assumptions, what ends up happening in your head is that, well, I need to make sure that they get value out of this and I need to make sure I give them the value that I can give out of this, which becomes a very restrictive, you know, cookie cutter kind of a design thinking workshop, mm. right? Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't prepare your presentations. That doesn't mean you don't have your cue cards with you. That doesn't mean you don't have your assets on the wall. That doesn't mean that you don't have the PowerPoint slides available. You have all of that available. But the question is, how attached are you to them? So the, the test always is, the test to me has always been, like I told you, if my daughter was there in the room, and if she had seen me do it 15 times, then why was I needed in the room anyway? So that means they had all the assets and I could just hand it over to somebody and just count the money in my bank, right? But this is where it becomes very important for you to be present at the event. So what you do is you don't, you know that you have all these things available, but you don't depend on them, right? And why you don't depend on them typically is because psychologically, because if you're depending on them, then you're really not listening to the questions that are coming up. You're not present at the event, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what you're looking for is you know, you've rehearsed it at night, you've had your couple of wines and you say, hey, you know what, if this guy asked me a question about uh, this is a company that's into agri-tech and I know nothing about the domain. So all you're doing is instead of relaxing and having a good night's sleep so that you're present at the workshop, you're furiously trying to read up, uh, you know, agri-tech domain. I obviously can't read up all of that in one night, right? Yeah. So you're trying to be who you are not. So I'll give you an example. One of the things that I did right in the beginning, the first workshop that I did, and it was the first time I was doing a workshop. I've been running a company, so, you know, I'm more a back-end sort of a guy. So you're doing marketing where people don't, you don't stand in front of people, you don't facilitate a workshop, you don't do any of that, right? But I realized that if I'm getting into this design thinking space and I'm going after uh, showing the value to the senior people, they need to be introduced and sensitized to design thinking in a manner that can only be done by someone like me and not by a junior person who doesn't have the experience to back it all. Mm -hmm. And uh, so two questions I asked. I mean, I did two or three things which are completely off the book. You can just cannot do these kind of things in, in a professional setting. Mm -hmm. So first thing is that I asked them, I said, what do you think my role is in the two days that we are going to do this workshop. So they said, I mean, all of, a couple of them answered, the others were quite reticent. They said, you know, what's this new guy coming up here? We don't even know him. And why is he trying to be so familiar with us? Anyway, so very quickly, I answered that question. I said, you know what? You guys are actually bosses in the company. So people don't talk down to you, right? But in these two days, you're going to be my prisoner. You cannot use your cell phones. You can't use your laptops. You need to take permission, almost like a school kid to go uh, to the loo, right? So, so, so guess what? You're going to be my prisoner and my job in these two days, I, I feel I will be successful if at the end of two days, I've made all of you so uncomfortable that you wonder what hit you. 
Now, this is not what they, they come signed up for. They wanted to be comfortable that we know this and there's a new tool that's coming up to us. So that was one. And I said, guess what? How do you think I'm going to do that? Who do you think is the most knowledgeable person in this room? And so obvious, obvious answer is I am, you know, why? Because my position, I'm standing in front of the whiteboard and, you know, I'm talking down to them because they're sitting and I'm standing all those kind of, you know, uh, positional stories. And I said, guess what? You're absolutely right that I'm the most powerful guy in the room. Why? Because I just told you that I'm locking you guys in for the next two days. And I'm the guy who's supposed to be the expert who's going to tell you all of this, right? Fine, I'm the most powerful guy, but why? Why do you think I'm the most powerful guy? Not for the reasons that you guys are thinking, but let me tell you what. It's because I'm the person who knows least about your business. I'm the most ignorant guy in the room. And I don't even know what design thinking is really about. What we are going to do is in the next two days, we are going to try and figure out what is the best way we can take your business forward. Right? So just to quickly wrap this up, you know, I'm ranting a lot. I think you need to edit this out quite a lot before you, you air it. But uh, an epiphany—it's a very, very powerful spiritual experience I had many years ago. You know, this is something called a drum circle. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's about 20, 25 of us who, who are called in. I mean, called in means we are just invited. It's not even a professional event. We are just told by some people that they're having a large hall where you just assemble. There is a bunch of chairs that you sit on. Right, and they they are going to bring some instruments, which are all percussion instruments, different types of percussion instruments, right? And so we go there as people who have experience. We go there expecting, oh, okay, there's going to be a half-day workshop. They're going to teach us something about drumming, and how we're going to, you know, uh, which instrument we are going to learn. So we've gone in there with all preconceived notions and assumptions and things, right? And there's this one guy who comes in there who's supposed to be the leader of the pack. He makes us all sit around tells us to pick whichever instrument we wanted out of the, the fancy stuff that was lying around there and said, if you don't want an instrument, you can, you can just use your hands. That's fine as far as we are concerned. And then the next thing he goes and does is he says, I'm going to just start a rhythm in my own way. Right. And uh, somebody, one of you should just pick up the, pick up the rhythm or start a new rhythm whenever you feel like at any point of time. Mm -hmm. And I go, I'm going in my head, this is a waste of time. This is not going to, this is not going to be music. This is going to be crazy stuff, right? I mean, this is going to be stupid stuff. He's just wasting our time taking, you know, a few dollars from us and uh, making us waste a Sunday afternoon. Dude, you will not believe what came out of it. Very slowly, but very surely, it's slowly, people were just picking up somewhere, the rhythm was changing there were people who were tone deaf and people who had no sense of rhythm and there was a rhythm that emerged in that uh, space towards the end of it which nobody could believe could have been designed so my answer to your question is that instead of trying to I, it's a great idea to keep everything in place it's great to facilitate and to guide but it's not a good idea to design the event what i i think it's a good idea to do is to say that well all of us are here. We want we want to achieve something. Let's figure out what we want to achieve. So that, so I I think when we start letting go and become a part of it, I'm looping back to our, the first part of our podcast, right? That mm -hmm. when you become a part of the larger uh, system, mm -hmm. then you can flow with the system rather than for you to be outside the system and expect that the others will take something out of it, right? And that's the 
that's I would say that's the Western way of looking at it. That you know, I've got a value proposition which I'm putting into the market. I own the value proposition. The, so I'm the provider. They are the takers. I think we need to shift that, and that will take us to the next evolution of design. Otherwise, we will stay within that space of you know being lazy thinkers. We keep everybody lazy thinkers. Nobody will become a designer. We will continue to remain designers who are actually like doctors providing prescriptions rather than making sure that you know everybody the beneficiaries themselves can actually create co-create something i like that i'm taking copious notes as we're uh, talking about this uh, sunil <clears throat> this idea of uh, almost the you know the system itself will know where it's headed right but it, yes. it, it does need some kind of a collective conscience or a, a common care reason why it gathers in the first place right so so the fact that's that always there we don't trust it enough i think yeah. it's always there that there's a reason i mean this is the eastern uh, indigenous way of looking at it that mm -hmm. you are all you will always reach that the podcast we're having today is also you know is something that it's, it's just something that happened right i don't normally participate in any of these podcasts i don't know why you picked uh, me to do the uh, to be a guest on the podcast but the thing is, we don't trust it enough, right? We don't trust that these things are going to happen on their own. Yeah, yeah. And 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 um, having the vessel to carry it, I think, is one of the one of yes. the ways I think to to look at it. So the so the entry and exit points, and I think this is how I like to look at events as well. Is um, if you travel to an event and disconnect from your current reality into a new reality with a set of people that are doing the same thing, allowing yourselves to be in a different state of mind, because maybe as humans we needed the travel part to disconnect from the reality of let's say the home part or where the original roots are you go to somewhere else to open your brain to then be more receptive to identifying common care right or maybe the place you go to has common care right and i think all of those ingredients are such important motivators and drivers and signals that you need to pick up consciously because then as a as an individual you go from from nowhere to now here right you, you we all live in parallel worlds and they intersect at some points and the points of intersection how they weave in and out of it is kind of how it works and i like to compare events to you know if events are to humans what the internet is to computers right if we are disconnected and not talking to each other their power can be used obviously in multiple ways but by connecting the knowledge of different prefrontal cortexes, different ways of simulating future situations, I think there's a very powerful um, thing that can happen. You know, change can happen when when people think along the lines of what progress could look like, right? Or or can see the impact and the signals of what happens if you go down the bifurcation of the breakdown path, right? <laughs> we are seeing the signals; they're being reported to us. We are, you know, whether we like it or not, they're brought to us on a daily basis. And I think actually, that in our itself... Power, our power as human beings is more on the emotional and feeling side. But actually, we've handed over everything to the brain, which is yeah. the logical part of it. Yeah. Which is a good segue into how, you know, artificial intelligence and technology is much better suited at uh, at designing things that are more logic-oriented and where, where the world should be going. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is to be the guys that are actually uh, custodians of the future from the perspective of, okay, does this make ethical sense or not? Yeah. And I think that's the role of design to change, basically, yeah. to say that, you know, uh, we not from an anthropocentric uh, 
point of view, but from an eco-literacy point of view, right? To, mm. So you take the planet first and then people, yeah. and that changes the entire equation. Yeah. The yeah, context is then a different vessel. Yes, correct. Yeah. The analogy I, I've used a lot is the difference between farming, which is a, creating a plantation, and allowing a forest to grow. So there's a big difference between the two. In one, you have a lot of control and a lot of design that comes into it. The other is where you're an observer and you partake of the bounty that gets created because you are also nature. Otherwise, you're, sta you're creating a position of yourself as a human being outside of nature, and which is why you think that you can actually create a plantation that's... And we know what the externalities are when you do something like that. Yes, absolutely. We, we see that on a daily basis, right? Correct. I think it's a fascinating way of, um, of looking at design to change. Uh, Sunil, thank you for this onstage part of the conversation that we've had. And I'd like to welcome you back to the backstage in a moment. Before I do that, I'd like to invite you one year from today uh, that together we look back upon this conversation and look what the, you know, which path are we headed down in this existential bifurcation? <laughs> how do the events that have happened between today and next year, kind of how they've taken shape. Are you willing to participate in this when we stand on the next horizon of change and then consider what has happened in this past year? Absolutely, Ruth. Anything for you. I truly appreciate that. Thank you. And that's, that's creating a marker in the future to create a, a now where moment, but at a different point at a different time, right? Yes. So I've penciled it into my calendar and we can tweak the date next year. Excellent. Whatever medium we use, we don't know. We might we might be on Web three point, you know, Web three, or we might be still using the same Zoom technologies that you know maybe a number of years down the line people will say, "What they were using Zoom technologies to record a podcast, right? What an what an ancient mechanism." But that also dates the moment in time, right? I think that's what creates an interesting. Or, or maybe or maybe we can be on in some quaint little cafe in the Himalayas and doing a live recording with each other. Exactly. Or on Lake Geneva, wherever. I would, I would certainly welcome that opportunity. And, and, uh, and we'll see where and if that happens, Sunil. For now, uh, thank you for joining the onstage part. Make sure that you join us backstage for the, the conversations that, that have, have less of a formal character. So I'll, I look forward to seeing there, Sunil, in a moment. This has been another episode of the Design to Change Designer Conversation Series. Explore these conversations and additional content at designtochange.online. Want more right now? Tune into the backstage episode of this conversation and hear what the experts discuss offstage.